All right, so another edition of the Edlo podcast here. Subscribe if you haven't already. And this is one, the moment, I say this every time, I'm always excited for these, but the moment I started a podcast and I knew I was going to interview wrestlers, I had Dave Dutra on the list because uh, for, for me, like Dave has a special place in my heart because when I was running uh, SWF Wrestling, he was the focal point for so long. I mean, he technically still is the SWF champion, (laughs) undefeated SWF champion. (laughs) And, um, and it was really cool because at the time, my view of it was at the time I saw Dave wrestle at all pro wrestling. And then at this little show that Alexis Jarevko, who's been on the podcast ran. And I, I remember thinking, I was like, this guy has it. I don't understand why he hasn't a main eventer yet. And, uh, and you had just turned heel and I thought it was a perfect, a perfect gimmick that you were playing. And we just, it, it worked out really well. We drew really well with you as, as the, the lead and, and, uh, you know, as the main eventer for our, for our uh, promotion and just really appreciated it. So I'm glad we finally got to do this. Cause I don't know why it took me so long to get you on. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, it was quite the introduction, Josh. Um, <laughs> and yeah, like, um, I always credit you for being the first promoter, booker, matchmaker to give me a chance. Um, At that point in my career, I had been wrestling professionally for about four years, give or take. So, um, you know, at that point, I think I had the internet belt at one point. So like a Mm -hmm. mid-card championship, but uh, no one had really given me the ball to run with. Mm -hmm. So it was really an honor to have someone finally give me that ball to run with. Um, so I always credit you for that. It was awesome. And it, um, we, yeah, we did amazing stuff with SWF. I thought it was uh, a really cool, like, what was it like two year run, two and a half, three years. Oh yeah. About three years. And three, then, three and then, years yeah. yeah. It was three years. And then, and then there was like a year where it kind of got spotty towards the end. And then, you know, once we did the new Japan stuff, I was like, I don't know how we're going to beat this. <laughs> you know, like that was it. Well, so, you had, I mean, you had your, your law school. I think you were trying to juggle all these things at once, right? You have all the, your, your kids, your family, uh, your, your law, uh, I think yeah. you were in school at the time, right? So, yeah. So I was in law school at the time and I, and, and I just got this wild hair to buy the wrestling ring. It actually worked out really well for me because, so I've been talking to high spots for years about buying a ring. And then uh, Mike, the guy who ran high spots, he called me and he said, you know, the big thing for me and anybody who knows who's tried to buy a wrestling ring knows the shipping cost is like twice what the ring costs, you know, at least back then. So he called me and he said, um, hey, you know, I have this ring. It was actually just really serendipitous. He goes, I have this ring. Uh, this guy wanted an eight-sided ring. He used it one time and decided he didn't want it anymore. I I welded it together back to a I'll weld it back together to be a regular four-sided ring, and I'll give you a thousand dollars off. And I was like, okay, great, but the shipping costs. And he goes, well, I'm actually going to be doing a uh, like a convention for Ring of Honor in L.A., so I'll just book it. Uh, he's like, I'll just tip throw it in the truck, and then I'll just charge you from shipping from L.A., which co- cost cut like two grand out of the shipping costs. Oh, yeah. So, I, oh, yeah. so I was like, great. And so it was just perfect timing. And I had just, I had just gotten the money. I had just gotten a student loan payment. So I had the money. And so I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. And then we just, we ran through it. And I remember t- saying to myself, I was like, I bet with ring rentals and shows, I could pay that thing off in probably a year. 
And between that and then getting hooked up with Impact and then getting hooked up with Lucha Libre USA and doing all those things, it ended up working out really well. And we had a really cool run. But I, the only reason I ended it was just because I I got I got my job and I was going to be working 60 hours a week and I just didn't see how I could focus <clears> on both and and do it well. And so um, but I'm I was excited because you really started. I mean, now you've become kind of like everywhere you go now, you're a main eventer for the most part, or at least at the top of the card. Uh, I mean, for everywhere I work, I've been, uh, at least in the last year or two, I've been slotted um, very favorably, I guess. Um, whether It depends how you look at it, though, because I, I can tell you there's a lot of times I show up, and because of me, like if I'm at a champion, it's like uh, Best of the West, for example, um, it's in Fresno. So for me, that's about a three-hour drive. Sometimes they're in Lompoc, which is about five and a half hours. Mm. And when you're the main event of that show and you're there at call time and then you wait for two hours to bell time and then oh, three hours plus for the show and then you're finally up and then you know you have that drive on the way home. Sometimes you like being like the opening. Spot. <laughs> yeah. It's almost foreign to me at that point. Um, to, you know, I think one time Mike was like, hey, I got a surprise for you. You get to go on first. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> You know, uh, you, know, it's, no, no, no. you know, what's cool about that though. I've, now that I've been wrestling a little bit, uh, I, I, one of the things I, I love going on first. I love it because the crowd is hot. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're ready for it, especially the brewery shows. Oh man. They, like you could do anything and they love it. It's so nice. Oh, it, so, don't get me wrong. It's my favorite spot of the card. Even yeah. Then, like I, <laughs> I would prefer to go on first because the crowd is hungry. They're fresh. They want to see anything and everything. So you're like you just said, you can go out there and you can work a hold for two minutes and then the first shoulder tackle, they go nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, you know, yeah, by the end of the show, you got to do a little more spectacular things because I've sort of seen two hours of wrestling already. So, right. Well, I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned by the time you got hooked up with me, you'd been a wrestler for four years and you had just made the transition to heel this how hard was it you've you've actually been reinventing yourself the entire time i've known you like when when i really came to know you you had just turned heel we we called you the champion of champions and then from there you kind of did the future and now you're the battle king tell me that first part how hard was it for you to kind of find your niche as, as far as a gimmick um, well, the heel thing always came natural to me. The hard part mm -hmm. was the baby face stuff. Uh, being a baby face, you, you have to really earn the appreciation of the fans, which is a lot harder to do than to irritate a fan. Anyone mm -hmm. can go out there and just say something bad about a hometown or just give that like sort of arrogant smirk, you know, like, and, and then you're automatically booed, right? But to really get true, like, uh, baby face reactions from people that are uh, especially if they're like seasoned wrestling fans you got to earn it through like the work rate you do and um when i started and this would have been at apw because I, I technically had been in the business a lot longer if you include mm -hmm. like my initial attempt to get in for pressing iron um and i i did a lot of backyard wrestling uh all the way back to when i was like 15 mm -hmm. but uh I all the, the heel stuff always came natural to me. And when you start off at APW nine times out of 10, they sort of 
typecast all their rookies as white meat baby faces. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of like a, a young lion in Japan, right? You sort of mm-hmm. go out there, you're very clean cut. Uh, you're going to probably lose a lot of your matches, but uh, you got to go out there and it's just very like, sort of, I mean, white meat baby face is really the best way to put it. You're like, Hello, Hayward. You walk out of the AP. Everyone did it too. If you watch mm-hmm. Dylan Drake, Matt Carlos, myself, Jody Christofferson, Will Hobbs, Mikey J. Like those are all the guys who sort of came up at uh, Jekyll's in that, you know, three or four year run at the garage. Besides Jekyll's, who was he was the uh, the one the one out of ten, <laughs> the other nine guys. It's like, come on, Hayward, let's go, Jim Wards. It's just very corny to an extent. Um, so that was the hard part for me is being that I've always felt like I could do like sort of an arrogant, almost everyone used to call me like the Miz because of my haircut, and my body frame, and stuff. But that that heel work I thought was very natural for me. Um, I don't think I'm a dick in person, but I, I think it's real easy for me to be one. Uh, so I was so happy when they finally gave me the reins. And APW actually wasn't the first one to give me the reins to go heel. Uh, mm. I started doing that at, at PCW first, mm. MPT's promotion. So they, mm-hmm. they had Matt Carlos and I joined up with Rick, and we did Pink Mink Inc. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I think at the time it might have been Team Luxury, but mm. either way, uh, we did we did that stuff there early, and I was already doing my heel stuff um, for them. And then uh, APW didn't come until I want to say June of 2011. Mm. So they they had me do my double D run up until then. And then at that point, I was like, okay, I got to make it something different. So I I'd never bleached my hair before, so I'm like, I'm just gonna bleach the top of my head. Bleach tips were long gone. So <laughs> they, they weren't trendy, but I thought if they weren't trendy and I did them, I would A, stand out because no one else had them. And B, it would be like, oh man, those are like 10 or 15 years in the past. What are you doing? You hate you. That's annoying. <laughs> but that's what I wanted, right? I wanted people to dislike me. So um, yeah, I had, I, John LaRocca's wife is actually a hairstylist. So I had uh-huh. her bleach my hair and I actually uh, a lot of my good friends who would go to the shows I faved them on it for a while I'd always wear hats around them because the uh-huh. show wasn't ready so I didn't want them to see the hair but uh yeah uh once that happened it was I, I think that opened up a lot more doors for me in general because people uh saw what I can do as a heel and they, they thought the work with like the storytelling was stronger yeah yeah I, I, I was always sort of, I was a smaller guy. I still am a smaller guy in general for pro wrestling. So a lot of times they would say like, Oh, we want to, we think you're like a cruiserweight. We want you to wrestle like a cruiserweight. Mm. Um, but that's not the wrestling I really like to do. Mm. So I, I like to slow things down and tell stories and right. build and build and build, which when you're a smaller guy, you can't always do it. But as a heel, uh, I, I never really got slotted against big guys anymore. When I was a baby mm. face, I was like Drake Frost, Malachi, <laughs> Polly <laughs> Sedora, Strongman John Anderson. And oh. I would just and I would just get beat the shit and thrown around. And then once I became a heel, all of a sudden I was working guys smaller than me. Yeah, and it was weird how that works. It's like. But that's how matchmaking sometimes is. Or I was working guys at least my own size. So you could tell 
more competitive stories and I could slow down matches. So, mm, yeah, well, let's talk about that pro. Well, well, let's even go back farther. You know, one thing I find really interesting is I know that you and Ryan Cowler and, uh, and Chupi all kind of came from the same backyard. Uh, and that's kind of rare that you get a few backyarders that all kind of go and, and become pros is that something that you guys all kind of feel connected to uh or or you know it, do you guys kind of reminisce about that and let's talk about your backyard days what it was like i i think we you know when i first like got you know into the norcal indie loop and we'd come across each other i think it was more of a connection then it's so far in the past now that i'm not sure we we don't necessarily talk about those days too much or mm. feel like it's like a deep connection. I think I have more connection with them on the pro circuit than I did for the short mm. run we did at, uh, it was called WFW. Mm -hmm. um, we all, I think we all came from our own separate like backyard promotions, if you want to call them that. Um, I had one I did in San Jose, um, coincidentally with a guy, you know, Anthony Trevino, who runs the UGWA now. Ah, yeah. Uh, uh, and Taylor, I think, did stuff in Sunnyvale. Uh, Ryan might have, I'm not sure if Ryan, where he started from. But uh, Nick Aragon, he did volunteer work for Roland Alexander. And in exchange for the free video labor that he did, you know, video editing, all whatnot, tape dubbing, he would be allowed to use the APW garage once a month mm. for his own backyard stuff. So uh, my dad he moved away from San Jose, which is where we were doing our backyard stuff. Mm. And we had heard through the connections we had on the internet at the time. This is early internet. So AOL. Instant yeah. Messenger. Yeah. All the message yeah. boards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The message boards really where we heard about it, that there was a backyard promotion that had its own ring um, running out of the APW garage. So I went up there. This was like in, summer of 2002 and then that's where i met uh ryan taylor and a bunch of other guys um and we we did the stuff at the apw garage as backyarders for i want to say about nine months mm -hmm. and then nick stopped doing stuff for apw so that whole thing ended ryan and taylor went to spw Mm. And then I did a tryout for Pro Wrestling Iron, mm. um, which I won that tryout and then started my my first initial wave into wrestling was in 2003 training at Pro Wrestling Iron. So, mm. man. So now Pro Wrestling Iron had just uh, broken off from APW, right? I mean, Mike yeah. Nottis was promoting it. And so what uh, was it just the fact that, that if you won the tryout, you got free training? Is that why you went there instead of APW? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I had the money to do wrestling training at that time. Uh, mm. And so it was like, if I win it, then awesome. I can continue on. And if I don't, then I, I got to first figure out what I want to do from a, a profession and you know i wasn't a great college student so college wasn't working out so it's like hey maybe i should go get a real job or i guess i can continue doing college and maybe do this wrestling school on the side and try to juggle those things and uh i i wasn't going to do spw because i wasn't about to commute to sacramento or relocate like mm -hmm. at that time in my life i wasn't probably mature enough 
uh, or ready to just move out on my own to a new city I wasn't familiar with. Mm. Um, still sort of a homebody at that time. So it had to be like within Bay Area driving distance. And I knew about APW, um, but I'd also heard a lot of negative um, feedback about the school. But hindsight, it was from people that were anti-APW. Mm-hmm. And a bit of a backstory is that at that time, APW did a lot to sort of single itself out in a little bubble. Like they they had this reputation for being sort of elitist. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, those don't don't take bookings at those other schools. Like they don't have the proper training and this and that. APW's on another level. Uh, so I would hear that rumblings from guys who worked with SPW. Um, and thus iron and SPW had a working relationship. Mm. So mm. I would, I would also hear it when I did go to iron, uh, the same stories about APW. So APW, um, wasn't one I was really interested in at the time. Uh, a quick story is that I did rent out the garage to do mm. one of my backyard shows during that same time I was doing the stuff with, uh, Ryan and Taylor mm-hmm. when I was booking it. And I, so I had to work with Roland on paying him to rent out the facility, signing an agreement, all that stuff. And uh, I don't know if I ever told this to Larry Blackwell, but maybe maybe I did. But at the end of that show, Larry was just being a asshole to all the backyard guys. He had walked out. He wanted to do a class, and we were trying to pack up all of our stuff. And somebody, I think, with APW bumped a like glass bottle that was just sitting on the table off and it shattered. Mm. Larry blamed it on all the backyard guys, all of my guys and myself. And then he reported it to Roland mm. uh, as a way to like, like fuck these backyard kids. And then I get a call from Roland when we're leaving that show saying that I owe him for damages and that <laughs> you broke, I understand that you were breaking glass at in my building and this, <laughs> uh, and it got squirt. I, I, I I pleaded my case with Roland and explained to him what went down and he, you know, it is what it was, but that, that was just another example of, you know, my mind at that time, APW wasn't the right place for me, Mm. but uh, yeah, the, the iron tryout, I heard about it through a few guys and it was like 35 bucks to Mm. get in and you were going to get evaluated by Michael Modest, Donovan Morgan, um, Sal and Vito Tomaselli, were there crash holly was there mm. as sort of like uh they, they were they were really close with mike and donovan and them frank murdoch a bunch of their guys so did that they one of the evaluations they had us uh, do some basic cardio we did some push-ups wall sits uh the bench press and then we did uh in we did a couple of rolls like for bumping mm. and then uh the promo like i think it was a 60 second or a 30 second promo Hmm. and then they would just take you into the back room and talk to you a little bit and then they determined a winner at the next the next night they had a show in san francisco they were doing and they were gonna bring the finalist to the show Hmm. um i won that but i've also heard uh, by the way i'm getting a bit of an echo so i'm not sure if that's oh i'm not i'm not hearing it yeah no, I'm I not wonder, hearing any. I wonder if I wonder if the mic is or one of let our me, mics is too sensitive. Let me see here. Let me reduce the mic background noise and see if that helps. Do you hear anything now? 
Let's see. That's the test. One, two. That's better. Way better. Okay, cool. Cool. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I listened to a couple interviews from Stephen Bala, who's chemo. Yeah, yeah I'm very familiar. Uh, and because he was at that same open tryout I was at. And he was also a finalist like I was. Oh, nice. And uh, Ray Kijimura, by the way, was the other. It was Those are the three finalists. Myself, Stephen, and, and Ray. The... I also heard an interview, I think it was from Vito Tomaselli. So this is this is the carny world of wrestling, at least back then. <laughs> they orchestrated the outcome of that based on who they felt would sign up no matter what. Mm. They, I think they probably isolated the finalists on some criteria of how you performed. Mm-hmm. But when it came down to picking who they'd give the free tuition to, mm. um, they determined which person would be least likely to sign up if they didn't win. Mm. So if you look at it that way, I guess I was the person they felt like was least likely to sign up. <laughs> so they gave it to me. And then they felt like the other guys, if they maybe gave them a discount, they would be like quick to sign up because they wanted money. That's what right. the whole thing was to bring money in. Um, so that's how, apparently, that's how they determined uh, the winner. And I think that's pretty true because I came across a very similar issue uh, when APW did it like years later and I was one of the coaches for it. Mm. Roland wanted to give the free ride to a guy who, in his interview with us, said, and he was, he was, I mean, he was definitely a top three. Mm-hmm. But he said, oh, yeah, I'm going off to the the military for the next year and a half. But um, I wanted to do it now to see how I hold up and I'll sign up or I'll come back, you know, when I get back from the military. And Roland's mm-hmm. like, we got to get we got to give it to that guy. Because, he, you know, he's not even going to be here. And the other guys, you know, we can get them to sign up a free, ride, you know, a full ride and whatever. And uh, <laughs> I, I just had like flashbacks and i got really mad i'm like rolling that, that's fucked up dude. the other guy is just as good and he wants to be here no man that's a uh, world of wrestling yeah no kidding well and that was the thing you know everybody it's funny because everybody now you know roland has been passed away gosh it's been over a decade i think since he since he passed away. uh um in fact 2013 uh, we're actually coming across the 10 years because yeah. he passed, I want to say, the first week of November mm-hmm. 2013. And I know that because I was on a business trip and I, I changed my flight to do the, the spur of the moment show at the garage that they did. Yeah. yeah. So the thing that was that people don't, I mean, everybody now has such huge respect for Roland and well, well earned. But back in the day, man, I mean, I've been around this around the area since 1999, 2000. And he was hard to work with, you know, in those first, the first half of, of uh, you know, the 2000s. I mean, just because he was the only game in town, really. And they'd had this big, he was on Beyond the Mat, and he had this big spread in Pro Wrestling Illustrated as like the ECW of the West Coast and like all this stuff. And so I was there when SPW, like literally the first shows of SPW, and Roland came to one show 
And, you know, Gabe came to the second show and Roland's like, we're not working these shows. We're not working with Gabe because he had heat with Gabe. And it just blew up this whole thing. And so it's, it's really interesting because he was, in my mind, at least in this area, he was like the last true like Carney promoter. You know what I mean? Where he just, yeah. he knew what he was doing and, and was a shrewd businessman. And I had a lot of respect for him because, I mean, that was a, that was a classic he was one of the last classic independent promotions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Him and Kirk, him and Kirk White. Kirk White was on some level like that too. So. Kirk was, and they, they, both of them did their best to keep their talent, at least for a long period of time, isolated too. Because mm-hmm. when I, when I uh, graduated from the boot camp later on, the BTW guys at that time, they weren't really allowed to take outside bookings. Yeah, they, they they pretty much exclusively worked BTW. So, and that was like at that time, my thoughts on their students were, and the big knock against them was they they worked twelve times a year, right? They worked, they worked once a month, uh, you know, every month, and they, they would not take outside bookings. But I mean, that was just the mentality there for that school at that time, or I don't know if that was a Kirk decision, but yeah, Kirk and Roland were right on par with each other, and I noticed Roland change. Pretty much around the time that Roland and Gabe Ramirez had their split. Because mm. so, I, I started in 08, and that's within a couple months after I started, um, Gabe left and started up Pro Wrestling Revolution. Mm-hmm. And Roland noticeably changed at that point. Mm. Um, and you could tell that he, I mean, he started opening his doors up to all these promotions he would never work with in the past. Um, John LaRocca took over the book. And he would mm-hmm. start bringing in outside HBW talent to do gym war shows. And Roland just became a little more accepting of different people from different walks of life who had different training. Uh, generally speaking, he seemed to be just a happier person. Why do you think that is? What do you think it so, was about game splitting? Um. I think one, he did need to, he, I think he needed to, he, he's already had this happen to him once before, right? So mm-hmm. he had this happen to him with, with Mike Modest. Mm-hmm. And I think he probably knew now from experience, the damage it can cause. You could, you know, one, like Mike Modest and Donovan Morgan, he took like half the roster with them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. basically said, you can work with us or you can work with them. Right. So mm-hmm. it, it hurt his roster after that 2001, 2002 split. And I don't think he wanted to do that again. And I think his help, it was under the, the second factor. Mm. The, the more and more sick he got because he, I think he was diabetic and he had poor circulation and he, he wasn't really eating properly. He, he loved having his uh, BK blast, which is his, <laughs> or BR, BR blast, the Baskin Robbins, like cappuccino blast. Right. He'd have one of those a day and he's a diabetic and he's just, you couldn't tell him that you couldn't tell him what to do, right? But he wasn't in good health, and I think he knew he had limited time. Mm. And I, that sounds sort of cryptic, but I think that changes people. Yeah, when you know your time is limited, and he had already stepped away from doing anything creative with APW, no promoting, no booking. He just ran the school, um, and you could tell he just—I mean—getting to A and B always was harder on him, so. I think he decided if I'm going to leave an impression of who I am as a person, um, let it be a positive one. Because yeah. you don't, I, I think 
people, as much as people like to say, I don't care what other people think. I think people for the most part do care what other people think. They just never want to admit it. Yeah. And what's your legacy when you leave this earth. Right. And I would like to think that most people would like it to be positive and go, I remember that guy and he was great for these reasons. And yeah. Roland probably thought he didn't have the greatest reputation and wanted to clean it up a bit. Yeah. Well, he definitely did too. I mean, I, I in that time that I was running SWF, I can, I can tell you that, uh, I had dealings with uh, Roland and with Gabe Ramirez, and I got to tell you, the experiences I had with Roland Alexander were far and away better than with Gabe Ramirez. And that's not a, you know, look, the thing is, is I would say right now, and I told Gabe this to his face, I said, of all the people who are promoting wrestling in the area, he was the best. You know what I mean? Like he had the biggest shows at the time. Like he had the biggest shows. He's, he's he still was, does. Yeah. I mean, he's. He he's done. He's got a great roster. He knows what he's doing. He's got connections everywhere. He's very good at it. But as far as just easy to deal with people that you want to do business with, I like Roland was was nothing but positive with me every time I talked to him. And so uh, it was it was surprising because I had heard. I mean, I had had a little bit of dealing with him in 2000 when he came to SPW those couple of times, and I didn't really have any more until I, I ran SWF. And then he was nothing but courteous and, and helpful and giving advice and things of that nature, which was so different than anything I'd heard from anybody in the past. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. uh, so I think he, he really did do that. And do, do you think that, now I know that you, you had, you, you graduated the boot camp faster than everybody else, but you had had training coming in at pro wrestling iron. Yeah. Um, so what was your experience at iron and then what was your experience at APW? And perhaps you can talk about how the, you know, how that shaped you as a wrestler. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, the iron training definitely gave me the, uh, the diamond lane pass at APW in that, that it, it prepared me so well for what APW did because they had the same training manual, mm -hmm. um, that it, it allowed me to sort of set the record, if you will of graduating mm -hmm. so quickly because I, I, I knew what to do. And I also knew a little more about the do's and don'ts as a, a student in pro wrestling. Mm. I, and that was from what I ultimately was a bad experience I had with pro wrestling iron. Um, the thing with pro wrestling iron, it, it just was a company that was, and I hate saying this, but it was sort of destined for failure. Mm. One, the, the Indies at that time were not doing well. It was a hard time in, in for the independence, but two, it was like this idea of like wrestling uh, ran by the boys for the boys, mm -hmm. but that's mm -hmm. not an effective way to run business. Mm -hmm. They were trying this idea of like everyone's going to get paid, you know, and we're all going to be this and that. It's a great idea, but it, you really need someone at the top to control mm -hmm. everything, right? You need a mm -hmm. A whatever a Vince McMahon or a Roland Alexander or a Gabe Ramirez or a Josh Edlow, like you can't just let everyone can't be the Wild West, right? Um, at the time, though, I mean, that really I don't think that was the reason why I had a poor experience, but it's probably more the reason why I think the company didn't work. But with mm. me in particular, um, wrestling was just different back then, and it's so much better now for new talent to get in and train, but there was a lot of hazing. Um, mm. A lot of the stuff you heard about from the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that you hear on documentaries with WWE about, you know, 
you're basically like the 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 legends or the old timers like bitch you know you gotta drive people places or you gotta you know pay your dues for lack of a better term in more ways than just than just putting the ring together mm-hmm. um, a lot of that stuff was was going on at iron and the thing that really i think changed everything was crash holly passing away mm. he, he was so close with mike modest and donovan morgan and frank so when he passed um, i think they took it really hard and every practice that i was in from that point forward at least one person was under the influence of some alcohol of some kind they were just there was mm containers of alcohol during training uh i would be running laps while they're smoking cigarettes in the warehouse so it's like you're mm-hmm. in hand, secondhand smoke while you're trying to do cardio um one of the trainers who i'll just remain nameless but like there was a an open bottle of miller light like on the ring mm-hmm. like that's not how you do a headlock and he would roll himself in and say this is how you apply it and like he grabbed me in the headlock to show the other guy and you could smell through his pores the alcohol mm. uh, yeah he took me over in the headlock and then that the bump of the ring knocked a bottle of beer so now the canvas is getting soaked in with beer mm. so i'm i'm laying looking at the lights with this guy's armpit smelling of beer in my face and i'm like is this what wrestling is, is this yeah. what it's not training should be Right. And I, I did it. I, I kept uh, going with it a little more. Um, someone had found out about uh, me doing backyard wrestling. Mm. And then they said that the fact that they they knew about it means that I was going to, uh, I'm going to have the, the toughest time ever making it in this business because you did that stupid bullshit. And um, then they... They said, where did you do it? And I said, uh, oh, I, I just wrestled in my own backyard. So mm. then they called me uh, Moby because of the acronym, M-O-B-Y. Oh, yeah. And then they that, that was my new name. So I was like being – and then you can call it ribbing what you want. But like I've never been one to rib people really. And sure. if I were and I found out that you know, one time maybe you rib them and then if, it, if it's continued to bother someone, I, that's not – what I'm about. Yeah. I would never do that. So it bothered me a lot that they just kept calling me that for the entire time I was there. It was like my new pet name and I, I just wasn't about it. And the final straw was, uh, and this I vividly remember is my first, I graduated their beginner camp. I went to the semi-pro class, which was ran by Vito Tomaselli, which coincidentally I'm going to bump into him in a couple of days at the Olympia. We're going to meet up. Hmm. Oh, nice. I was in the class and they were teaching Beals out of the corner. So Mm -hmm. he would line up into a turnbuckle in the corner when one of their uh, pros would grab you and do a bill you over to the other side, right? So Mm -hmm. you just do your post and do a front flip. And unbeknownst to them, I was pretty good at flipping. Most of my Mm -hmm. backyard stuff was on a trampoline and I grew Mm -hmm. up on the trampoline. So I can flip. I have no issues Mm -hmm. with that. I will, I'm not, I'll leave this person nameless, but um, grabbed me by my shirt for the deal. And as I'm going up, he held on to me on purpose. Mm. So I couldn't rotate that well. And I landed on my upper shoulders and neck when I peeled over. 
and the veto my trainer thought that it was me and my inability to flip hmm. so i got you know chewed out for bro you're gonna kill yourself out here you can't even flip and you're in my pro class and like you got to work on that stuff and i had been there long enough now to know not to like be a rat and like tell mm-hmm. the other guy and throw him under the bus because that probably mean i'd get more uh hazing of whatever so i kept my mouth shut but i on that on my drive home i'm like this is bullshit like everything mm-hmm. about the school like there's alcohol and smoke yeah. everywhere half of the talent was chewing tobacco and spitting into fucking cans outside the ring mm-hmm. and now i'm getting hazed and now it's jeopardizing my ability to um to excel in the class and risking injury like i i just can't do this anymore it's not for me mm-hmm. I, i'll say that maybe i just didn't have thick enough skin i was only 18 at the time mm-hmm. uh, Maybe you hold that against me, but it just it wasn't a good fit. And then um I thought wrestling just wouldn't be for me anymore. So I stepped away. And mm-hmm. uh I I didn't come back until I started working at uh, a company called uh Harrington Plastics. It was a industrial plastics distributing company and JJ Perez. Mm-hmm. He worked there as an inside sales guy. So uh through hanging out with him. He sort of talked me back into the business and then I signed up for APW. And now I'm in, I'm like 23 at the time. So I'm a little older, a little more mature. Um, and he promised like all the things I shared with him about iron would not occur there. So I, uh, I made the plunge and that time I had to also pay for it. So, <laughs> yeah, but did, did it ultimately, was it different? Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it was completely different at that time. Um, Roland, I submitted an application on APW's website and Roland called me within 30 minutes. Hmm. He was, uh, and this is Roland, the Carney guy, right? So he's saying, I understand on your application here, uh, you trained at pro wrestling iron. Uh, I do want to let you know that none of that training you did there matters with us. You're going to have to start over from scratch, just like (laughs) everybody else. But based on, uh, what I see here and, uh, Looks like you did some wrestling in middle school and uh, seemed like an athletic guy, good frame. I consider you an A minus prospect. <laughs> and because of that, uh, you know, we just started a July camp, July 20, 2007. And uh, even though it just started and it's a full class, because of how I've classified you, I really think I could squeeze you in here. If you'd like to pay right up, right, uh, right up front now, I'll squeeze you into the July class. What do you say? <laughs> uh, it's okay Roland I, I, I really want to take my time and save up the money for it so he was just trying to upsell me and get me in early thinking how hungry I was but I did sign up for January in 2008 and JJ ended up being my trainer which was awesome I couldn't mm-hmm. have asked for anything better so uh, Robert Thompson had some of my training too uh, Robert was like really about building a family so he would uh, with all the students he started training, he would invite them to watch pay-per-views for WWE. No, nice. So that helped build like that camaraderie you'd looking for. And so everyone was like really close. Um, and, and the JJ was really just about perfecting little things with everyone's work. So I had sort of a perfectionist 
And then I had like a, a guy who was great on just building team morale and Robert. Uh, and then Larry joined in Larry Blackwell. Um, and Larry was more of a, a fan than I would have ever expected. Cause usually when I was getting into the business, you weren't allowed to show that you were a wrestling fan. Mm-hmm. Once you were in the business, you were like, you had to be, uh, I guess, very serious and you couldn't show emotion if you saw something that really enjoyed. Uh, yeah, hey, be professional. You're not a fan anymore. Yeah, but, right. But, but Larry sort of brought that out. It's like, hey, you could still be a fan of wrestling and be in mm-hmm. the business. Like, it's okay to do that. So uh, it was just a night and day difference. Um, but I think APW had probably changed a lot yeah. you know, over the last decade at that time, too. So everything sort of worked out for the best. Um, they used the same training manual because Mike essentially stole it from APW when he went to Iron. All right. <laughs> so when I went back, they gave me this book. I'm like, oh, I already have this book. All right. Yeah. And then I just sort of breezed through everything because I, I already knew bumps were super easy for me. Um, and I, I, I've always been relatively athletic. I think like where I needed the most work was just like on the, maybe the amateur wrestling and the, the holds and, mm-hmm. um, and then obviously I think everyone needs work on their selling. That's something that just comes over a long period of time, ring psychology, but most of that is taught like in pro camps. So. Yeah. Now who, who would you say you were closest with in your group in your camp? Um, well, Matt graduated before me, Matt Carlos, mm-hmm. but we were obviously really close at that time because we were paired together a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he did, he was like one class ahead of me. Nearly everyone in my class is not in the, in fact, I don't think there's anyone that started in January 08 that's in the business anymore. Mm-hmm. We had uh, this one girl named Lil who, Matt and I worked together with in Pro Wrestling Revolution as the Polyester Express. She was our dazzling mm-hmm. Dixie Lane. She was in my January class. Uh, do you remember Tyson Thompson? Sounds familiar, but I okay. He was around for a minute, but uh, he was in my class. And then there were guys who, like Jody Christofferson, started like right before my class but he was still in my class with me because he was still continuing his training so mm-hmm. jody and I, jody and i were really close for a while and then uh, about a year or two later you had like will hobbs and mikey J. yeah yeah and johnson who both came in um and i'd always been close with them uh, of all those people it'd probably be either matt or jody mm, yeah i was the closest with all of those guys are such great workers too. I mean, you know what yeah. I mean? They, they all just, they were guys I'd book anytime, you know? And, uh, so now, uh, mind you, while you're doing this, you're trying to figure out life. And I understand, you know, your now wife, I mean, you've been together with her since high school. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. We're high school sweethearts. So we've been together now. Uh, we met in 2000, so 23 years and we've been married for 13 Wow. So now is she generally, I mean, did she know the, the, the deals from the very beginning you wanted to be a pro wrestler or did that she, so she knew coming in, like, this is not a surprise when you're signing up for pro wrestling iron or going to APW. Yeah. I mean, she she knew, like, I I think she knew what she was getting into with my fandom. 
right? So like mm. when she met me, I was doing the backyard wrestling stuff in high school with my buddies. So she would come and watch us do stupid stuff on trampolines. And maybe at that time she thought I'll grow out of it, but she also knew I watched Raw and SmackDown mm -hmm. every week um, that I would, you know, skip a college class to go wait in line to buy tickets for a wrestling show. Um, <laughs> when I quit Iron, but before I had signed up for APW, I had started buying WrestleMania tickets. And, you know, like I went to WrestleMania in L.A. Uh, mm. in 2005. And then mm -hmm. I, we, we flew to Chicago and went to WrestleMania two, uh, 22 in Dude, so WrestleMania, WrestleMania 21, I was there. That was, yeah. wasn't that the last one that wasn't in a stadium? I think they all went to no, stadiums 20, after that. 22, 22 was. Okay, yeah. But man, that if you think about that WrestleMania 21, I shared this with my son recently. That was my first ever WrestleMania. We Mine saw, too. yeah, we saw John Cena's first reign, Batista's first reign, the first Money in the Bank ladder match, uh, Stone Cold and... Um, Piper. Stone Cold and Roddy Piper and Hogan's return to the WWE and his induction to the Hall of Fame. I mean, that that was a historic WrestleMania when you think about it now, twenty years later. You know what I mean? And you can't forget uh, that five star match with uh, Sean and Angle. Right. Oh, that was that's the best match to <laughs> this day that I ever saw live. That was shockingly good. I mean, yeah. just so good. The whole crowd was into that. Man, I mean, I mean WrestleMania 21 to me is still in my top five WrestleManias, and now there's almost 40 of them. So to yeah. say top five for anything, um, that that's an end to end. Except the, uh, I think the only thing that was a stumble on that one was the uh, Aki Bono and right. the show. <laughs> yeah. But you know, yeah. like there's there's always going to be like one thing that's always bad or frowned upon at a mania. But but yeah, like you know. She knew, like, gosh, she's flying out to go to shows now. So I think at that point she's like, I think wrestling is is going to be a lifelong thing for him. So I don't think that she was surprised at all when I signed mm -hmm. up again. Yeah. So so now um, with that, uh, another thing. Let's. What got you into wrestling in the first place? Was it your father? Was it your you know family members? How did you get into it? Um, it was WWE's business acumen to plant their programming after Saturday morning cartoons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that That's what got me in. And then I would credit my dad on top of that because my dad would sit down and watch with me. So like mm -hmm. basically it was every Saturday morning, I think at like 10 a.m. with superstars. Yeah. 10, might have been 10, or, or 10 or 11 or 11 to 12. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was on for me. It was on KTVU Fox Channel Two, uh -huh. and then they Sunday morning they would have like All American Wrestling or Wrestling Challenge. Yeah. And so like you know, as a kid, when you're, we didn't have the internet, so like you and I also my parents were divorced. So like mm -hmm. when I was at my dad's house, um, I went to school in my mom's neighborhood, so I didn't even have classmates nearby. So for me, it was like I had my Sega Genesis and the television. Right. So. I would watch this wrestling all the time uh, because it was colorful characters. It was Macho Man and Hogan and The Undertaker and the Legion of Doom and the Rockers and all, all this other stuff. And uh, my dad would sit down with me and he would get a he would get a kick out of it. He, his favorite wrestler is The Undertaker, uh, and he he loved Paul Bear, and he would always root for the. He would basically be Jesse Ventura 
in our living room. So he would cheer for all the heels when Undertaker was a villain at the beginning, right? And right. I got so mad. And he would just love to instigate me and get me upset. Like I'd hit him in the arm, like, don't cheer for him. And then he, he would just keep playing along. And it became like a like a pastime for us too. And I'm sure he really enjoyed that kind of bonding because at that point he only saw me, you know, two or three days, I think two days a week for mm -hmm. worse and stuff. So um it was, you know, Saturday and Sundays watching wrestling and then I started buying the toys. And then my dad was the one who always took me to the live events. Yeah. So my first live event was in 92 uh, at Oakland. And then he took me to a couple house shows at the Cow Palace. And then eventually when they started coming more to San Jose, the first, the first event in uh, the SAP Center, I did the San Jose State Event Center. Uh, so we were going to those and yeah, so I think he he kept it alive. He allowed me to watch it, and then my mom, to her credit too, because Monday nights I was usually at her house through the visitation. Um, she allowed me to watch primetime wrestling, which yeah. eventually which eventually became Raw. Right. Uh, and at that time, I was only you know seven or eight, six or yeah. eight years old, and she yeah. would let me stay up till 10, 10 p.m on Mondays just because she knew how much I liked wrestling. Yeah. And you know, what was cool about primetime, which I thought was so interesting was I always remember primetime wrestling had the matches that like wouldn't end up on superstars or challenge. It was like videotaped house show matches. And, yeah. uh, and so I remember seeing a match with Mr. Perfect versus Jim Brunzel, who I'd never seen wrestle in a singles match other than, I mean, he's always in the killer bees when I was watching him. And I remember thinking like, Oh, well, you know, it was one of those matches where you're like, well, Mr. Perfect's going to run over him. And it was, no, like a competitive match. And they made me believe that Jim Brunzel, they just sold a drop kick. Like, you know, they worked a drop kick where if Jim Brunzel could hit this drop kick, he might actually end the perfect streak. And I believed yeah. it as a kid. And it was just like, those are the types of matches you didn't get to see on Superstars because Superstars was always trying to promote the next Squashes. Saturday night's. Yeah, they were trying to promote yeah. the next Saturday night's main event or the next house show. And and I loved primetime for that. Or, uh you know, for that exactly for the, for that exact reason, and so it was it was always a lot of fun. Did you ever watch like NWA WCW too? Did you search that out? Uh, no, because I I didn't I didn't know it existed unless I stumbled across it, and I started. So I was born in '84, so mm -hmm. I didn't have the savviness to start like looking up the channels and the TV guide until I was probably six or seven. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, this would be like 1990, 91. Um, and I did finally see uh, the 3.05 p.m. start time, I think, because yeah. TBS was live. So we got the West Coast time slot for the – what was the show on Saturday afternoons? Was it, it, was, it, uh, it was just it was WCW Saturday Sat night. Saturday night, right? Yeah. yeah. So usually by three o'clock on a saturday afternoon as a kid in california i'm out like playing with kids in the neighborhood or riding my bike so it it wasn't i would stay i would be glued to the tv in the morning on saturdays watching mm -hmm. all the cartoons and then wwf was right after cartoons but by three o'clock i usually wasn't in the house to like watch more tv so i i didn't always watch it and at the time, like I was already such a fan of WWF that I didn't, it wasn't must see TV for me at that age. But mm -hmm. occasionally, when I was around, I, I flipped through and I found it. 
I would watch it. So I, I knew guys like Sting. Sting was my favorite wrestler on that program. And then I remember seeing uh, Pillman and Austin. Mm-hmm. Loved them. And then I remember seeing Cactus Jack and thought this guy's really different. Yeah. Like, he's just crazy. And he's sort of scary to me. Like he does things that I seem very unsafe. And I remember that. So when, when it, I finally started seeing these guys in a WWF ring. It was a big deal to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're finally at this company. That's why I remember yeah. them when I watched them on Saturday night. So, you know, I it, felt it, was, it was very sporadic when I watched it. Bottom line. I, there was a there was a show. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a show um, on ESPN. I think it was like GWF or something like that. It was only on for a year or two. Yeah. But I remember watching that, and that was when, like, Buff Bat, before, like, Harlem Heat was a team, but they weren't Harlem Heat. They were something different. And the one, two, three kid was there, and Buff Baglow, well, was this guy called the Handsome Stranger. And, like, you know, all these guys. And I remember just stumbling upon it in a summer when I wasn't doing much. And, uh, and then the, it was just such a big deal when those guys started popping up on the shows that you know. And I get it's kind of yeah. like, it's kind of similar, like, with with indie guys that you see now you know it's so cool to think that when i was running swf you know you and jeff cobb and will hobbs and brian cage and all these guys were all working together and now you know everyone's all out, like you're many in places everyone's going out and doing all these great things and it's just so so uh exciting to see that i mean it's it's crazy so now yeah. who are your influences like who did you love the most uh, when I was very young, like the first, I mean, was Hogan for mm-hmm. sure. Um, not too long after Hogan, I sort of became a Randy Savage guy. So mm-hmm. I would say when he got back together with Elizabeth at WrestleMania seven, dropped the macho King and became macho man again, mm-hmm. that baby face run, um, probably until he dropped the belt in 92. Mm-hmm. So basically that 92 or 91 to like late 92 run, I was so hard into Macho Man. I asked my mom so desperately to buy me a jacket so we can glue tassels on it. And I was a big <laughs> fan of all the, the different colors he would use. I went berserk when Jake bit him with the snake. Oh, man. And that was like such a traumatizing moment for me. <laughs> like yeah. Randy Savage was my guy. And then after that, um, when Brett won the belt, uh, I was a big Brett guy. And I and Sean was ultimately like the guy that I really modeled myself after. And I started doing it when he was a heel. Mm-hmm. And what hooked me onto him was his theme song. I always yeah. felt like. Well, I was like seven or eight years old and I'm hearing the words like sexy boy. Yeah. For me as a seven year old, it's sort of taboo. And like I went to my friend at school and we were at recess and like listen to the lyrics to this song. I'm gonna I'm gonna sit. We didn't have anything to play it, so I'm like, he's just a sexy boy. And then we would like giggle like little, you know, little kids. And, like, <laughs> I, and I, I thought it was so funny. Um that they would have music like that. And I just got a kick out of it. And I always loved like how he had these really ridiculous clothes with like chains. And I, again, that was, it reminded me of Randy Savage, all these like really just obnoxious clothes and entrance gear. So I sort of liked Sean and then I was a brand guy. And then when they ended up feuding in like the mid nineties, um, it was like heaven for me. So uh, Sean was probably the biggest influence. Um, mm. 
and then later on as i became more uh, more involved with actual like wrestling the business side of things i think from like a heel perspective and just heel work i really like triple h yeah um, i just thought for he's like the the prototypical villain heel wrestler. And I think he doesn't get a lot of credit he deserves. I think people, he, I think Triple H is the kind of guy that it's popular to like mm-hmm. shit on him because of maybe him having a relationship with the McMahon family and, you know, mm-hmm. having always favorable booking from about 2000 until forever. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, but if you take that out of the equation and just watch some of his his matches, um, he doesn't do anything spectacular, but everything is like fundamentally sound. Uh, every baby face that you know they put him in, like with like especially when he works with guys like Orton, uh, Batista, and even more recently when he was he was putting over uh, Roman, Seth, you know all these guys. Like he, he's just a classic heel, and I've always liked his work so. Yeah, it's it's funny. You, you're right. And I think it even goes back further in that, like when he was Hunter Hearst Helmsley before DX, he was in the click. Right. And like everyone, I think everyone thought even when they were Diesel and Razor Ramon, those guys were cool. You know what I mean? Shawn Michaels was the guy. And it was always kind of like, who's this triple A? You know, who's this Hunter Hearst Helmsley yeah. guy who like somehow he is also gets all these cool things and so he always kind of politically had the right you know the right spots to be but you're right in that like when it was time to put someone over he did it you know what i mean when it was time to put over somebody big i mean you know he did i mean what he did for batista was like i mean he put batista over in every way yeah you know what i mean yeah i mean the only one that the only time it comes to mind where i think they made the wrong booking decision is when he didn't put over booker t um, yeah, right. And that one, I felt that was a mistake, and whether or not that was his call or someone else's, Vince's call, whatever. But uh, when when it, he was the guy who he was booked favorably for long stretches, mm. but at the end of a long story arc, he always jobbed, and all the most of his big matches that you would consider his best matches are all matches he loses. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. The only, I think the only match he probably won that was was uh, against Foley that street fight. Yeah, Foley was getting ready to retire, but like, um, yeah, I, don't know, I, I just I've always felt like he's been underappreciated in that aspect because people just look at the politics. Yeah, no, I agree. That's uh, so now as you're, you know, as you're trying to you know establish yourself in pro wrestling. What, what are you doing for, you know, trying to, now you've got kids. Tell me about how your family kind of came together in the meantime. Like, was was that kind of difficult, given that you were traveling all over the place on the weekends? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's more difficult now than it was in the beginning. So, you know, my, my son was born in 2012. So up until that point, because I debuted in 08 for APW that first four years, it was not a problem at all. Um, in fact, for until we got, I got married in 2010, that first two years from 28, uh, sorry, 2008 to 2010, um, we actually did a long distance relationship because my wife, her first job she nailed was a uh, nursing gig at um, Cedar sinai Hospital, which is that celebrity hospital in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, 
she rented a little studio apartment down there and we still had our, our little place we rented in uh, Fremont in mm. the area. And she would come up as much as she could on like weekends, but the wrestling thing helped keep me busy. You know what I mean? So like I was training at least two, th- two days a week, sometimes three days a week at the garage. And then I was training mm. in the gym every day. And I had a full-time job at that point. So like the wrestling was keeping me occupied. And then, you know, she would come visit when she could. And, or I was out doing indie shows. Um, Mm. That changed a little bit. um, Once we had our, our firstborn. Um, But, you know, she, her, our schedules have always been in a way where we make it work. Now it's a little tough because our kids are in after school sports. Yeah. Um, and so every weekend they one or, or both of them have uh, activities to do and I'm yeah. either missing all of them or mm. um, I can go to them or maybe my, my daughter's in competitive soccer. So she does usually sometimes one, two games a day. So mm. most recently I was able to go to her morning game and then I had to drive to San Jose um, this weekend. And then I stayed in San Jose and, uh, because I had San Francisco the next day. Mm-hmm. Then I came back home and, you know, shows end at 10 o'clock. It's a two hour drive. Kids are sleeping by the time I get just, they don't even see me until like Monday afternoon. So, um, so that, that, that's taken a toll a little bit. Um, I think when I got into wrestling, I made a conscious decision that I was going to do everything I could to juggle my personal wants of being a family man with my personal (laughs) wants of being a professional wrestler and I think I've done a great job of juggling that, but I do think it's sacrificed my ability to go further in wrestling. Um, mm. I don't necessarily regret it though, because um, like my kids, my wife, um, they're everything to me. So I, yeah. I hear the stories of, of uh, guys who, you know, miss all the birthday parties and miss all the events and stuff. And uh, would, Maybe it's worth it if you make it to the top, right? right? But I I understood that the chances of making it in WWE at that level, especially when I was younger, because the business back then was like, hey, you got to be six foot two. You got to be at least 230 pounds. And you got to be in your early 20s, like to have a yeah. job. So I knew that because of my size and my age, um, my chances were already really low so how much do i put on the side of wrestling versus my family Mm -hmm. i didn't want to be i didn't want to be a dad that starts having kids in his late 30s early 40s like right i didn't um my dad he installed carpet for a living very Mm -hmm. hard rigorous blue collar labor and by the time that i was in high school like his knees were so shot, he really couldn't do a lot of stuff physically, like to play with me. Like, hey, let's play one on one. I can't. Really, I'll play horse, but I, I can't really do any of that. Mm-hmm. Like, I I didn't want to be in a position where I wait to have kids, and then by the time that they're of that same age, I'm like in my fifties, and I'm like, oh, I can't do that. Um, joke is, is that I feel like sometimes I'm in my fifties with my body, but <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what it, it's. Funny, I actually did a podcast not too long ago, um, actually sometime, maybe it was a little while ago, uh, with Tito Santana. And I talked with him about that. And I asked him, I said, uh, 
if you could go back, would you do anything differently? And he actually said, he goes, I probably would have not gotten into the business because he's like, I have a great relationship with my kids now. You know, they were like 14, 15 when I finally kind of got away, you know, started doing indie show in the indie scene. Because I miss so much stuff, Thanksgivings, Christmas, birthdays, you know, all sorts of stuff. I wish I could have had all that back. And that really struck me because, you know, I, I thought for sure, I mean, being, you know, six foot seven, 285, you know, coming out of high school, I thought for sure I was like, oh, man, I'm going to get a, you know, I, yeah, I'm going to get a look. You know what I mean? And uh, and then I went on my mission and came back and then life just didn't work out that way. And I always wondered, I was like, man, maybe I should have given that a bit of bit more of a go back when I was younger. But I could I would not have I couldn't imagine any like main eventing any wrestling show would be as cool as watching my kids grow up. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just watching them develop their talents. Like your kids are a little younger than mine. I have a senior in high school right now and, and, uh, and a freshman in high school. And it's, this is the best time of life I've ever had. Like watching them just grow into real human beings, like not just kids, but developing wants and interests and desires and think, figuring out life and girlfriends and activities and, you know, like my, my son just just gra- just made the varsity basketball team first time, and he's just like he's so stoked. You know what I mean? And to think that I'd be like flying, you know, I could be in Japan or something wrestling some show right now and hearing that on Facetime, or I could be seeing it face to face. And it, I think that's kind of you know, I think I guess what I'm saying is, is I think you're not missing much. You know what I mean by yeah. by doing that. So, um, what do you kids think of your wrestling? Oh, go ahead. Now, oh, no. I mean, I'll, I'll answer that question real quick, too, because um, I just had one other point. But um, they now they're not really into it anymore. Mm. When I when I first got back in and started doing uh, the Futra and all that, mm-hmm. they were just at the age where they thought dad was like a mega star. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I right. Took them to the show. I took him to the shows and they and like Logan was like, wow, that's my dad. And um I think COVID sort of killed wrestling for them because when the product got so bad during mm-hmm. the COVID era where they weren't having uh, any fans in the buildings, mm-hmm. I didn't really have any interest in watching that because mm-hmm. I think the audience engagement in pro wrestling is pro wrestling. Without right. an audience, it's not wrestling. Right. Um, so I wasn't watching it, and because I wasn't, they weren't. Mm-hmm. They watched it with me. Um, so they lost interest in wrestling. And now that I'm doing it um, again and wrestling's back to normal, uh, my daughter, you know, she can get into it from time to time. Like if, if I'm actively watching, she'll get interested and want to know, like, when are the girls on? I want to watch the girls. Logan's sort of like whatever. He's sort of moving past it. So uh, I think he's just sort of outgrown wrestling. It's not his thing. He's more into, like, Minecraft. and uh, Oh, yeah. And all that how, how, old is, how old is Logan right now? He's 11. Yeah. So Lincoln is 10, and he's – He's playing Apex Legends, Minecraft, and a couple other games, and he just he just plays video games all day. But he loves wrestling. I took him, I I did a show for uh for for Jeter Johnny Jeter, uh, and I took him and and his sister, uh, my twelve year old daughter, with me to watch it, and they just they just thought it was the funniest thing ever. They they afterwards they go, it's just so crazy because you know I, my character's a heel character and. Yeah. So afterwards they come up to me and my sister was like, it was just so funny to watch that. Cause that's just not who you are in real life. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? And it's just like, yeah, well that's wrestling. You know what I mean? And, but they thought it was cool. Cause people were coming up, you know, coming up and saying great match and all that stuff, you know, 
they just thought, you know, for a minute they thought I was, you know, I was kind of famous, you know what I mean? And so it was pretty, yeah. it was pretty cool. But, but, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, so you now you're, you're kind of a main eventer in the indie scene and you've gotten a chance to also do a lot of really cool, like you've had some cool moments in wrestling. What would you say are like, stick out to you as the coolest moments, like, the story you're going to tell when you're to your grandkids, what, what, what would those be? I mean, uh, so there's moments that I do as like extra work with WWE and um, that I could talk about. And there's moments that, you know, I've done in ring myself um, a lot. I think, I, I think a lot of the moments that I would share would probably be the ones I've done extra work for, because it's hard not to think those are amazing moments when you get to, do what you do on live television or in front of 15,000 people in a building or get a speaking line with who's now like the biggest box office megastar, Dwayne Johnson, right? Yeah. Um, those are all amazing things. If, if I'm going to talk about like things that are like on a more personal level with stuff that I've done on the indies, um, the first one that comes to mind was this Christmas chaos match I had at APW with Matt Carlos in 2010. Mm. It was just so, for a lot of people, unexpectedly great mm. because mm -hmm. they're looking at it like, here are these two students that are given this platform to wrestle for 15 to 20 minutes for a, for a title. And, you know, it's going to be two students wrestling. and It'll be all right. You know, they're, they're, the friends they trained together so it could be a good match and we ended up having the match of the year voted by the fans and nice. the workers nice. like and it, we got it it was the first time that i got what is like what i would consider one of those roh or pwg kind of smart fan reactions mm -hmm. so like mm -hmm. after that match was over we got a standing ovation from everyone in the garage and everyone in the garage is what like 60 people right uh but, you know, literally everyone stood up and just started clapping. And then, like, a people that I truly respect, like uh, LaRocca and Roland, who are always at the little table um, mm -hmm. on one side of the building, they stood up and started clapping. And I'm like, they, I've never seen them do that in the two years I was working Gym Wars. Mm -hmm. um, just everyone just started to sit there and clapping. And I was like, wow, we, we really did something special. Uh, even if it was only for the 70 people in this building, like, you don't typically see that kind of stuff. So that was really uh, awesome for me. Um, winning the SWF championship and you having the trust in me to do this like angle for what, you know, on the Indies wasn't normal. Like, Hey, we're going to put you, we're doing this outdoor show and you're going to hide out for like three hours yeah, <laughs> and then you're going to just sneak in and we're not going to tell any of the workers that you're doing this either, except for like the one guy involved. Uh, and then continuing this and building this story and having the trust in me to like execute that. And again, this was at a time where no one was putting me in that slot was really special for me personally, because mm -hmm. it felt like, okay, finally I can showcase what I think I really have in my toolbox that other yeah. people weren't giving me that that option because I either was too low in the pecking order or I was uh, too small, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, so that was really special. Later on, um, being able 
I got reached out to by Gabe Ramirez after I had a falling out with Revolution in 2012. Um, he reached out to me in like 2019 mm. and asked me if I wanted to come back and do Border Patrol. Um, and looking for another guy. And that was something which ironically was when I asked him that I would like to do um, in 2012. But at the time, he's like, nah, I don't need it on the spot for that. And I'm like, well, let's let me be Dave Dutra then. I don't want to be the Polyester Express or I don't want to be a luchador. Mm-hmm. And we meet, we, we parted ways because we didn't really have, he didn't have anything for me and I didn't want to continue to do comedy characters. Mm-hmm. But he reached back out to me like years later and asked me if I want to do that. And I was like, Gabe is not the kind of guy who just reaches out to anyone for this kind of stuff. So like there is a level of trust um, in my abilities at that point, especially not talking to him for seven years mm-hmm. for him to reach out of the blue and say, I think I trust you with my number one heel gimmick in my company. Um, those kind of things go a long way for me. And then being able to sort of break away from what I would call, I've been like heel indie guy for mm-hmm. all of these years and to do something more character driven like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was like, it had been something I've been building and building. I would have loved to have done it with APW, um, but it didn't really work out because COVID hit, which sort of killed APW for lack of a better term. They've had one show since COVID, but a lot of things have happened since then. And Marcus isn't running, but um, UGWA which has this sort of hood slam like underground vibe mm-hmm. really meshed well with what I was trying to do with battle King and battle kingdom. Um, the, the, the visuals of the character and the got the costume and the entire really sit well with that company too. So similar to what you did with SWF and me, um, the UGWA has done with me um, let, sort of creating long-term storytelling uh, having the trust in me to, you know, sort of put the company on my shoulders. We just, this weekend was the wrap of a two year story arc with Jordan Cross. Wow. So we, it was very, very slow burn. Uh, we wanted to bring him in as like my first night of battle kingdom. We basically told the triple H Batista evolution story Mm. over two, over two years. Wow. Uh, slowly built him to be the man. Um, I got jealous. Um, he looked like there was a power struggle. Uh, and then I cut him completely out. And then we butted heads and had our big match Sunday, which I was, I was hurt for, <laughs> but yeah. uh, I did, I did what I could to make it what it was. And everyone has told me they thought the match was great. Um, but it's just it really I think the theme here is that what the stories I will tell are the ones where I get told from people I respect that like we like what you work, we like your work, or we felt that you or we trusted that you can do something and execute it flawlessly, because it's the mutual appreciation. Um, the final thing I'll tell you about this is a story I haven't shared with really anybody. I just did extra work for WWE about a month ago. Mm. Um, I did a Raw and a SmackDown uh, in Sacramento and San Jose. For Sacramento, there was a segment that I was security and I was going to get attacked 
by uh, Solo Sokoa and mm. uh, Jimmy Uso. And they gave, they asked who wants to take the spot that you're going to get pushed over a cart. Like there mm. was like a, a loading cart there. And this was the most dangerous spot. It was probably the one that's going to hurt the most. I looked at it like it was the most spectacular. Mm. And I've always heard, especially from people like Heyman, that you want to maximize your minutes. Mm-hmm. If you ever given an opportunity and you only have one minute, 15 seconds, make it the best one minute or the best 15 seconds that it can be. Miz has said this lots of times too, um, because Miz has been on record of saying that everyone says that I get given shit. Like mm-hmm. I, I, they give me a script and it's total dog shit, but I try to take the dog and it beautiful, right? Or mm-hmm. chicken shit salad, however, whatever phrase you want to use. Um, maximize your minutes is the key. So they asked a bunch of us extras who would be willing to do this one fall. And I raised my hand immediately without even, like, I didn't even pause. So everyone mm-hmm. eventually, like, they all sort of went like this. But mm-hmm. I was like super yeah. fast um, because I just knew that that was the spot that would be likely uh, to be remembered mm-hmm. more than anyone uh, and doing that, like I worked with a WWE has a stunt coordinator, mm-hmm. which I thought was amazing. Like they, they had this guy work hand in hand with me on planting, you know, how the cart would be positioned. They asked my opinion on things, which I thought was really cool. They didn't just tell me, they literally consulted, like, how do you want to do it? How do you feel this would be the best um, uh, to be safe, but look spectacular? And then when we did the bump, uh, they yelled cut after. Because this was shown picture in picture during a match on TV. Mm. So once they knew that the feed was cut and it was back to just showing the match, they yelled cut. And uh, every wrestler was like, and this was like Jimmy and Solo. They're like, are you all right? Are you all right, Deuce? I'm like, yeah. And then Paul Heyman breaks them up and he comes up to me and he goes, that was an amazing fucking bump. Unbelievable. And he shook my hand. <laughs> and he didn't have to do that, right? Right. He, he was already, like, in the distance. He, he could have just, like, nodded or went a separate way or waited for the other guys to, you know, break and they can go get some catering or whatever it might be. But, like, he took the time to this unknown extra to walk up to me, shake my hand, give me the praise he did. And, and those moments, like – really can make anyone's day and that's what like gives me the energy to keep going is moments like that yeah do you do you have any frustrations um because i mean look i know you've you've done a bunch of extra work you've done a, i mean you've been at aw dark you've been at every time it seems like every time wwe comes anywhere near us you're you're one of their extras uh, I know you did some stuff with Impact when we were doing the, you know, the uh, Impact runs with SWF. Uh, do you do you feel any sort of frustration that you haven't been called up yet? I mean, I think anyone would lie to you if they said they didn't. This is right. an entertainment. It's an entertainment industry, and it's sort of doggy dog. So it's like everyone's clawing for the position. And um, so yeah, there's been times where. I've been frustrated. I think I was frustrated a lot with 
the AEW stuff. Mm. Um, candidly, like, it, I don't know if it was just a, a, a lack of communication, but the individual that I worked with um, while I was on site during the first AEW Dark that I did, um, I was given a match and I dressed up as Battle King because I was I was meant to unveil that character right before COVID hit. And when COVID hit, I was like, okay, well, my hair is long now and I have all this get up. So I brought that character and I brought all my traditional tights mm -hmm. just in case whatever they needed. But they gave me no direction on, you know, what to dress up as. They just said, you know, show us what you got. And I'm like, okay, well, what I have prior was very just generic. Mm. You know, it's just, you know, standard indie guy with trunks and kick pads. So mm. I'm going to put on this Battle King stuff so I stand out, right? That would be the logical thing to do. And in my experience uh, doing an impact trial, my prior experience doing extra work for WWE where they've, they've looked at us in the ring and done tryouts there. And then I did a uh, an All Japan tryout. And all three of those companies told me, hey, you are a talented wrestler. We can see that, but you look very generic. You're, you're relatively average in size. Uh, what's going to be unique about you? Like, what stands out? Like, why would we hire you over another white guy who's five foot ten and wears trunks? Mm -hmm. um, and you hear that enough times, and, and you go, I got to change. Like, I have to do something different. And the All Japan was the third time where uh, it was Ultimo Dragon. He told me, he's like, he's in broken English, right? He's all, you uh, greatest worker of tryout, but all you are is worker. Like, we want character. Mm. So I, I didn't go to Japan for that reason. Mm. And so and that was the moment where I sort of went full bore with Battle King and like, okay, I'm going to have this, you know, I spent a ton of money on this like elaborate costume and this gear and a real scepter and all that stuff. And then COVID hit, I didn't get to use it. And then I got this opportunity to go to dark. I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to debut this character on this AEW dark show and hope for the best. And I, I got in the costume. I went to their photographer because the AEW photographer he always shoots everybody in like all these different forms. You know how on dark they sometimes do the side like Mortal Kombat, right. right? Yeah, so they they have you do all of that stuff. And the photographer was like all about my gear. He's like, "Wow, like your gear looks incredible. Where did you go and get this made? Like, uh, um, it looks like some of the gear I've seen some of the superstars here use and this and that, and mm. just putting it over." And then I'm waiting because AEW Dark, uh, at the time in COVID, they were taping like two episodes of Dynamite Dark, and it was like six hours of taping. So I'm standing around in my gear for a while. Uh, the guy who works with the extras, he walked by me a few times, seeing me in the gear, didn't say a word. And meanwhile, like Brian Pillman Jr., he walks by me and he goes, Dan, your gear looks better than half the guys here. That's amazing. Like, where'd you get this gear? It's just... So I'm I'm like I'm I'm getting really excited. I'm optimistic at this point. Like I've gotten two compliments from one from a talent, one from a photographer. I go out, I do my match with Ricky Starks, I come back to Gorilla. Uh, Cody gives me praise. He's in Gorilla. 
um, Tony Khan is in Gorilla. He says, you made Ricky look great. That's what we wanted. Um, everything was awesome. We thank you so much. Like it was, it's all everything we asked for. So I'm on, I'm on a little bit on cloud nine at this point. I'm like, okay, cool. I've done my job. Um, I didn't know how exactly this character would come out. It's my first time, but it, seemingly it, it was great. And then I hear nothing. So mm. weeks pass and I touch base with my contact there. Uh, I basically have to bug him for two more weeks. And then he finally responds to me and this was his feedback. He goes, you know, the, the, the first photos you had sent me, which were the, the future, mm-hmm. I didn't have Battle King photos yet. He said, we would have rather had that because your Battle King stuff, like it, it just looked too much like you were cosplaying. And uh, we would have had just like the, the indie looking wrestler. Mm. And that was like we- the biggest punch in the gut for me because I was just told by three other companies that's how they I wanted them, i've yeah. told this story to jeter before actually yeah and he told me just ignore them they don't know what you're talking about but like you know they all the other companies said we want something character driven and this company literally has a guy that dresses up like a dinosaur uh, you know what i mean <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I mean that's not a knock on him by the way like i i love luchasaurus i love a lot of their uh, i mean you know, all the guys that i've worked with there are amazing wrestlers right but they have a lot of colorful characters. Yeah. Um, so for that to be the feedback is that you would have rather had me dress up in normal indie gear. Like that sort of hurt a lot. And especially considering he walked by me multiple times during that six hour taping, which I didn't get out there until two in the morning to do my match. Right. So, so I was in my gear for at least a solid four hours where he could have said, Hey, do you have any other gear you could put on if it really was a factor? Right. And I would have said, absolutely. I got tons of gear because right. I brought it all. Um, I don't know if that was him just, he didn't have any real insights. So he just made up an excuse, but sometimes that just happens in wrestling, right? Where you, yeah. you get dealt the bad hand. And at this point in my career, cause that was obviously now two or three years ago. Um, I've learned to let a lot of things just roll off my shoulders at this point. Yeah. Like so you maybe, do. It's that, maybe it's that idea of I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, the, I, the one point I'll make Josh related to something we talked about earlier with balancing the idea of like how full board do I go into wrestling versus my family? Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen too many indie wrestlers don't focus on their their actual career that pays the bills um, uh, or if it's their family, whatever it might be, and try to do wrestling 100% and they fail, right? Mm-hmm. I've always taken the approach of I have to prioritize what pays my bills first mm-hmm. and, and continue with wrestling and right behind it as much as I can. Uh, and my, that, might, my, that might not be the right solution to – succeed as a pro wrestler but i knew the chances were so low that i didn't want to take those odds so i I have a really good career um so i have something that i could easily fall back on and you know i'm lucky enough to own a home i have uh you know a family of four everyone is healthy um 
I feel like I set myself up pretty well to where if wrestling doesn't come of anything else than what I have now, then I'm okay with it. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, it's really interesting. And this is one thing I like about you and, and I relate with you quite a bit on this. And that is there are some of those guys out there <clears throat> that uh, indie wrestling is all they have. Like it's part of their identity and it's just, you know, your window for being a true indie wrestler is so short and your life is so long that that transition becomes incredibly hard for a lot of people, even on the indie circuit. I mean, we're not even talking about WWE wrestlers, but even indie guys. And um, so I think that that balance is incredibly important so that that way you, um, you, you know, you aren't hanging on to something that uh, either isn't going to happen or hang on too long or, start doing things that are out of character just so you can get a booking if that makes sense like there are so many guys out there who they've got that like they're they're so into pro wrestling that they would you know they would uh they would totally screw you over for another you know 50 dollars booking and it's just you know what i mean and it's really really uh it's sad you know or people who are just hanging on so hard to indie wrestling that you know um that you know everything else doesn't really matter and and it affects their home life and it affects everything else and i can see you know i i follow you you know we keep in contact and i know you're a good dad and you're a good husband and you know you do all those things and that balance i think is making you a, a well-rounded individual you know oh, i appreciate i appreciate that um I, that's just always been my mantra i I love wrestling, but I don't love wrestling more than my family. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not afraid to say it. Wrestling's great, but um, there, there's a joke that sometimes I've had it with a few of the wrestlers. You know who they are, but I'm not going to name drop them. But we sometimes will joke and say the best part about this wrestling show is the the drive home or the carpool or yeah. the, the the restaurant, the diner after the show, right? Right. Uh, some, and that sometimes it's very true and it's sad, but like sometimes the, the camaraderie on the road is better than the actual in-ring stuff. And I, I'm at a point now where I don't, most of the shows I'm booked on, I can't even find a carpool buddy. Cause like, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't work very much in Sacramento anymore. Mm. Um, it's very rare if I do. Um, most of my bookings for the companies I work for are either in San Jose or San Francisco or Fresno or Lompoc or Newark. So a lot of Bay Area and a lot of like Central Valley, uh, but most of the guys I know in Sacramento, they don't go out of Sacramento. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, so it's hard to find that. So I'm traveling by myself to these shows. Um, so the carpool sucks. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> okay, put on a put on a podcast and then whatever. Yeah, and uh, I don't even have the diner experience. Like, let's go out to the Denny's and just shoot the breeze. I don't even yeah. have that. I can't even. I can't even fantasy book anymore because like there's no one to talk to, right? Yeah. So for me at this point, it's like the only thing I have to hold on to, at least signs of the last year or so, is how uh, the experience in the ring or the experience in the locker room. Mm -hmm. um, I've been fortunate that the locker rooms I've been working with have been awesome. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm meeting a lot of young kids now who I think are amazing talents. Um, 
but I think you know, like Jordan Cruz, I'll put him over till day's end. I legitimately think he's like the next guy who can get signed somewhere. Mm. Uh, get, give him another year or so, and he should get signed somewhere. He's already doing New Japan stuff. Got a great look, great physique, mm. um, and I've got to watch him develop over two years right now, and like he, he's ready. Nice. Um, there's a, a guy named Nick Xander uh, based out of Las Vegas. He's starting to work some show. He works uh, for Best of the West. He works for the UGWA. Um, great guy. His facial emotion, his facial uh, for all of his matches, spot on. Great psychology, and he could do a lot of like high flying stuff too. So, uh, but but I I'm it's cool being like sort of the older guy now, watching these young guys uh, do their thing and. Uh, I don't know what what the future uh, entails for me. Uh, I gotta heal up my knee right now because I have a. I'm not sure what it is, but I, <laughs> I got an MRI tonight actually. So, mm. uh, injured my knee over the weekend. So, and that's just, you know I'm getting older, right? So yeah, part of wrestling, man. How much time you got? I know I, I know you got a, I know you got a hard out. What how much time you got left? Um, I got about ten minutes. Okay, cool. So yeah. let me ask you. Let me ask you a few questions. I ask everybody kind of life questions. Well, before I do that, let me ask you quickly: If yeah. you could work any wrestler, would we'll use you know a top guy and then just an indie guy in the area, uh, who would be kind of like your dream matches? Uh, like a current wrestler. Yeah. Uh, like on uh, so for current. Oh man, there's just so many good wrestlers out there. So many talented wrestlers. Um, I think I might, I might. So I, I might lean on Chris Jericho. And the reason I would say Jericho is that there's something to be said about being able to wrestle someone you grew up watching or being yeah. a fan of. Sure. And, I'm old enough now that all the people I grew up watching are not wrestling anymore, except right. him. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I would have I would have said Undertaker, but he's gone. I would have said Michaels, but he's gone. You know, I would have said Hunter, but he's you know not gone, but they're retired, right? Right. Um, most of those guys <laughs> are no longer working, except for him. Mm. So I would probably say him, um, just to have to say like I was able to work with someone I grew up watching. With Jericho, it was like as a teenager, but um, probably mm-hmm. him. Uh, second would just be, I, I'd probably have to go with Roman Reigns just because you, you always want to have the opportunity to work someone on a large platform who's like the biggest star, right? Yeah, right. You could learn the most from, but it would probably be Jericho. On, on the indies, Um I, I mean, it's not really the indies, but he does work indie days from time to time, but I'd like to have one more match with Jeff. Yeah. Uh, Jeff and I, are, Jeff Cobb uh, and I are, you know, good buddies, and we still chat now and then, even though the hours from Japan to California are pretty tough, but yeah, um, I'd love to wrestle with him one more time, or even JR. J- mm. Jeff and JR Kratos and I, uh, we were road buddies, you know, about – 10 years ago. And so JR and I will still time to time do revolution shows together. But uh, those guys are like my little click, right? Yeah. Like 
if you know if i'm sean you know they're nash and diesel right so yeah so, um either one of those dudes i would love to work nice nice let me ask you there's some questions that i ask everybody these are just general life questions what would you say is your biggest success in life my family yeah yeah um i think just watching my kids grow up and and you know they're generally just great kids they're not troublemakers um that i think is a testament to my wife and i and our ability to raise kids and you know be you know decent parents we're not we're obviously flawed i think everyone's flawed but um i think overall that's the thing i'm most proud of nice what would you say is your biggest failure in life and what did you learn from it uh that's a that's a tough question um Probably college. Um, mm. I I wasn't like I mentioned it earlier. I wasn't a good college student, and I dropped out of college um, for a variety of reasons. Not just I was a bad student, but life uh, what came up, and so I had a fallen out at that time with my mom, who I was living with. So I had to move out, and when you move out, I wasn't going to ask for anyone's help. So I had to find a way to pay for rent to live in an apartment. Mm. Um, so I had to go get a full-time job and I was working with, uh, I think the average age of the person I was working with was like in their forties. So like a 22 year old kid working, it just sort of matured me a little bit, but, um, the, the scholastic part of my career was a failure and I wasn't mature enough to understand the importance of education. I'm now, uh, the company I work with now actually provides free online uh, education if you want it for they, they have a few platforms they subscribe to so you can pick any courses you want to take and just take you know free courses of any subject you want um, not just like general education but if you want to learn more about computer programming or if you want to learn more about artificial intelligence and technology like you can name anything you want you can just take the course um, so I've learned now, like how important it is to continue to, uh, learn and better yourself. Um, as you get older, you sometimes have this fear, like you're replaceable because they always want the next best thing, even in the mm-hmm. professional environment. Right. So how can you continue to, uh, better yourself and be that asset that they want to keep or they can't afford to lose? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I probably could have learned that more if I would have stayed in college, but I'm <laughs> learning now. Yeah. Hey, it's never too late, man. It's never too late. I tell people all the time, like law students who worry, they're like, Oh, I started a little bit later. Like I didn't become a lawyer until I was 31 years old. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's worked out really well for me. And so, you know, it's never too late. Just keep going. Um, you know, uh, what keeps Dave Dutra up at night? Ooh, not much anymore because Dave Dutra falls asleep way too early. <laughs> <laughs> I know, man. Dude, my day is so yeah, my day is like that. I'm so tired at the end of the day. If I turn on the TV and sit on the couch, I'm going to be out. My kids joke about it all the time. I I, I would think it's it's probably one of two things. It's either worrying about something with my kids, mm-hmm. uh, like you know 
not to get too personal, but you know, you know, one of my kids, you know, struggles with certain things mm-hmm. and, you know, we're getting them the, the help they need. Um, but like letting that worry, uh, get under my skin a little too much, or, um, I would say sometimes petty drama within the wrestling business that I don't need to worry about. And I, <laughs> that, that was something I've learned over the last year just to let it roll off because I, I, I've now sort of like cleared it with myself to know, you know what, I'm okay if wrestling isn't my career going forward. And when you finally come to terms with that and come to peace with it, um, the drama that goes with wrestling, the politics, um, uh, sort of roll off the shoulder and it's no longer something a burden. That's true. Well, I'll tell you, man, I, the, when it comes to kids, I don't think, I've said this a few times on here, I don't think our kids understand how much we worry about them. I don't really don't. You uh, know? Yeah, they, uh, hopefully, they'll eventually figure it out. But. Yeah, when they, when they have their kids, they'll realize it. I'm just now realizing the pressure that my parents were under while I was in high school. You know what I mean? And just what they were dealing with and why some of the bad decisions they made, why they made them. You know what I mean? So, right. well, uh, final question. Uh, one day you're going to pass away. There's going to be a eulogy at your funeral. What do you hope somebody says in your eulogy about you? Uh, I, I would hope they, they talk about my ability to bring people together. I think, outside of wrestling um i'm usually the person that puts together uh, gatherings i i coordinated two different uh bachelor parties for two of my good friends i just put together a uh a 40th birthday outing excursion in tahoe for one of my buddies i host a monthly poker game Nice. Uh, and I've been hosting this monthly poker game now for seven years consecutively every month without fail. Uh, and we do potlucks and stuff. And I, I'm really big about getting people together and having a good time. I'm not like a partier per se, right? So I, I've never been a guy to go out to the clubs or to drink. But if you're talking about, hey, let's all go have like a burgers and dogs and, and let's play poker, or let's watch the game, like, that's been my thing. So I, I hope that people can recognize that I've put a lot of effort into getting, bringing people together. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I can tell you, like I said, I've known you now for well over a decade, probably closer to 15 years and, and watching you grow and watching your family grow has been an absolute privilege. You're a great guy. I'm so happy that, you know, we were able to do SWF together and I, I count you as a friend and uh, I just think you're a great person and, you know, I just hope everything continues to work out with for you as they have. So, oh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, dude. This was really fun, and uh, I'm not opposed to doing a round two if we ever want to just shoot the breeze. So, absolutely, man. We absolutely will. We'll do it again for sure. And so, uh, yeah, everybody who's listening, you know, this is Dave Dutra. Oh, where can people find you if they want to follow you on wrestling for wrestling? Yeah, uh, on X, formerly Twitter, it would be at Dave Dutra. <laughs> Uh, Instagram and Facebook, it would be at Battle King Dave Dutra. Um, and that's pretty much the best place to go. You know, I have a YouTube channel. It doesn't always get updated. So, uh, but you can, I mean, you can Google my name on or search on YouTube. You'll find me there as well. So awesome. All right. Anybody who's, uh, you know, has been listening, subscribe. And uh, we got a lot more fun stuff coming up. So, uh, Dave, have fun at your daughter's uh, 
theater performance? Yeah, you got a theater performance. Yeah. So luckily, <laughs> school's right down the street. So I'm just going to uh, drive down there. It's like two minutes away, and I got to be there in nine minutes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I appreciate the time. So thanks, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Josh.